You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Aaron Davis, an investigative reporter here at The Post. It's been almost a year since the attack on the U.S. Capitol, and while the aftermath continues to ripple across America, the last year has been especially difficult for members of the U.S. Capitol Police. Last January, officers found themselves on the front lines of the insurrection. Dozens were injured physically. Many more have wrestled with emotional and mental trauma since then. Yet, most are now back at work. And they are there, even though threats against sitting members of Congress and our entire democracy have only increased. I'm honored to be joined today by U.S. Capitol Police Sergeant Aquilino Gonel. Sergeant Gonel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get started, I want to mention to our audience that you are joining us today in your personal capacity and your comments are your own and not on behalf of the Capitol Police. And Sergeant, I want to thank you for how you have been open over the past year with us and others about the long journey that it has been for you to recover. You've discussed some of your injuries and even your surgeries you've posted about online. So. But I also know you've been back now at the Capitol, back on patrol. So I'd like to begin by asking you a year later, how are you doing? And what has it been like to be back in the Capitol? Thanks for having me. And for that, let me correct one thing. I, I'm back at work, but not on straight oh, duty. Uh, this whole past year has been very difficult, challenging. Um, Emotion, basically, I've been overwhelming on the amount of physical therapy that I had received, painful therapy, mental health sessions, uh, trying to help me cope with some of these moments that I, I endure. Um, they still traumatize me and others. Uh, it's difficult. It's not only myself going through it, my whole family and relatives, I also going through them. And so it, it's been challenging and difficult for everybody else. When I'm, when I returned to the Capitol on November 3rd, uh, I hesitated before going in, uh, to be honest. Um, and for a moment, I thought that uh, it's going to be gut-wrenching to uh, even take the first step out of my car just to go trying to go in and then when I go in then you have a moment of relief that you see your colleagues or your co-workers uh, and some of your subordinate uh, as well but it doesn't take away the trauma and everything that happened so it's uh, anything could trigger you um, you got the sounds or war or just doing your job, you know, it comes in waves. So it's difficult. Part of the importance of an anniversary uh, is to not gloss over uh, what happened, but to look with clear eyes and to learn from uh, you know, the events of last year. So I'd like to ask you if you could begin by taking us back to that day. Where were you stationed? 
And what was the first sign that you had that you or the Capitol Police were in, in danger? I was stationed on by the Supreme Sar uh, Court uh, area uh, as a staging ground. And the moment that we heard the first call officer in, in distress that we had officer injured, then we immediately, my squad and uh, I believe almost everybody who were in the area, we responded immediately to, to the West Front uh, to confront the crowd. Uh, and by the time we got there, uh, there were a lot of officers there that were already fighting for their lives because they were being overwhelmed physically, being attacked uh, from multiple sides. So the the magnitude of what we encountered was something like I never experienced myself, and not even when I was overseas in in, in combat. One thing I've been struck by looking at so much video from that day is how the police, the Capitol Police, were not the aggressors at the beginning. It was the protesters pushing over the barriers. The pro I didn't see officers reach for their weapons, pull their weapons. You said at one point in time that some of those coming at you had told you that they were armed, they had guns. Looking back at that a year later, how much of the, of the first wave of that conflict was animated, was, you know, set by the what you thought was how the, the, the crowd was armed. We've, we've heard cap commanders say that they worried it would be a bloodbath if officers started pulling their weapons. I mean, it, it's very hard to to make that decision. I know when I made that decision not to use my weapon, uh, I thought about using it. Um, believe me, I did. But would that make it worse for myself or the other officers being surrounded by thousands and thousands of uh, unruly, uh, violent people. They already had their intent on uh, attacking us in full police uniform. So when somebody says, why don't you use your weapon? Okay, which one? Uh, which one are you uh, referring to? Because if I don't see a weapon in their hand pointing at me, I cannot go shoot the crowd. It's common sense, but well, we, I think collectively, but yet individually, we made that decision that if we were to use our uh, lethal weapon, then it would be would it have been a bloodbath, uh, as I said before. It was just a matter of who would start shooting first, and if we did that, then we didn't know how that crowd would have reacted because we got thousands and thousands of people that had not gone through security screening or anything like that. Uh, they breached all the barriers that we had in the West Front, regardless of how, uh, what type of barriers were in the West Front, but they already breached them and they had the intent. So if we were to sh shoot at them, then it would be all out, all out shoot, shooting match between them and, and we were surrounded uh, as i later, later on uh find out that we were surrounded by the crowd around the capital so okay. imagine what else could they have done if we would have started shooting as you can see uh there have been in court 
uh, some of the people being charged with bringing weapons to the Capitol. And those are only a, a fracture of the people who have been being able to be in charge and sentenced for bringing the weapon, let alone the thousands and thousands of people who were here that day with backpacks. Well, my colleague Peter Herman wrote about what came next for you as you did try to manage that situation. And I'll quote from a story he wrote about your injuries last year. Ganell was hurt when rioters tried to yank away his ballistic shield. They threw a speaker at him, struck him in the face with a pole, sprayed him with chemical irritants. He remains hobbled, a hand scarred, a shoulder aching, and is recovering from surgery to an injured foot that swelled so large it no longer fit his shoe. Now, I've spoken with several Capitol Police officers over the last year, including one of your colleagues, Captain Mendoza, and she told me how she had tried to hide the injuries uh, that she was working through, uh, nightmares and such, from her children. But you had these injuries that you were working through very much at home and in and, and view of your family. Can you talk, tell us about what that has been like? Oh, well, my wife, on January 7th, when I woke up, she thought I was going to a hospital. And I grabbed my lunch bag and I started making my, my stuff to come back to work. And she got upset at me because I wasn't thinking on myself. But at the same time, I knew I had to come back to work to do my job, to help protect the capital and the country uh, defended democracy that we, myself, have fought for being in the military. And I don't know if she understood why I was getting ready to come back to work, but she got upset. And I never told her why I did that until recently, like about a week ago, that I asked her, did, did, you, understand, did you understood why I did that? And she said, no, I, I was really upset. And I sat down and I explained to her that me coming back to work meant that I was doing something to continue to secure her future and my son. And by being here, by doing my job, by coming back and, and help secure this building. So the government could continue functioning because what January 6, the culmination of what transpired was an attempted coup. And God knows what would have happened if they had succeeded, uh, if it wasn't because the effort that a lot of officers and myself did on that day. And she told me, I never thought about it that way, but I could see why you did it then. But before that, I explained to her, she wouldn't, I don't think she, she had any idea that I was including her uh, into my calculation that I needed to return to work. You know, I think we're having a little bit of technical difficulty. I think I've lost your picture, but we'll keep uh, uh, conversation going here. I got here. you. You're back, all right. So, um, before that, back, I don't think she, I don't think she understood that the implication that me coming back to work also uh, ensure my 
ensure her that the I was providing safety not only for the country but for her and my son and uh, their future by continuing to keep the system that we have because January 6th was still uh, a attentive coup and God knows what would have happened with the system that we had in place and her future the way I thought about it then. You are now back, not every day, but I understand in the fall you're back in the Capitol and you will be again shoulder to shoulder with officers, each affected individually in their own way by January 6th. Can you speak to what you think is the shared experience that you and your colleagues uh, have and the understanding you have about those events and how they've impacted you all? I know it's a, a multi-front issue where you have these conversations at home and you know trying to wrestle with how to tell your kids about what happened that day and and then also back at work and and how you look at your job is there something we should take away from this where you are a year later well it's hard to put into words because you have a lot of different angles you have the mental the physical and then you have the work environment where you come to work and you see the same people that I risk my life to give them a chance to go to a secure area and not be harmed. And I put my body, I bled for it. And now they're telling me and the other officer that our sacrifices was not warranted because the crowd was friendly. The crowd was were tourists that what they were doing, they were just exercising their first amendment right and it wasn't i almost lost my life doing that multiple times officer fanon almost got killed in the crowd uh billy evans later on died because of some of this political misinformation and stuff uh, brian signey died the day before but his injuries happened on january 6 and he was in coma for almost 20 hours. And now they're saying that, oh, he died of natural causes. Are you serious? And then you have, you hear some of these elected officials now making uh, alternate realities and, and facts and, and theories about what happened. And I've never been political out openly about certain things like I know about politics, but it doesn't mean I, I'm outside telling them what I what I think. But when you become a elected official, you swear enough to not only to the, uh, not to a person, but to the country. And myself as, a, as an immigrant, I think I have more value to that oath and, and devotion to that oath to this country than a lot of those elected officials because they're not doing what's good for the country. They're doing it what's good for themselves and, and to remain that position of power that they have uh, knowingly that what they're doing is harmful to the country. And Before they should, we run, do, they should I, do better. I'm sorry, Sergeant. Just one last quick question. You wrote an op-ed that uh, is online today and will be in the Washington Post tomorrow. Uh, talking about a continued need for accountability regarding what happened on the 6th. You once gave testimony this past July to Congress about the events of that day. 
what is the one message if you could sum it up that you would now take to Congress a full year later? What would you tell them? What would you tell the committee continuing to investigate? Our Air Force to continue to fulfill our duties and defend them and the country and the capital. It goes beyond political lines. And a lot of us are former military members ourselves. Uh, what I want from them to do is hold people who are responsible accountable, including those elected officials, because if they don't do that, this might be a recurring issue every four years, or you, you can't have this system that the elections is good if only if I win and if I lose this rig. It can be that way. It's not a the American value, it's not a democracy. And I want people to be held accountable so they have a deterrent and not to have the ill uh, thoughts of recreating this again. Unfortunately, that's about all the time we have. Sergeant Ganell, thank you so much for your service and for joining us today. Talk to, talk to us about something that I know is personal. Right, thank you. And Happy New Year to everybody. I'll be back in just a minute with my next guest, Danelle Harvin. Please stay with us. an out-of-body experience for me personally. Uh, when the phone rang and my deputy who, who was deployed in the field said, Danelle, you're not going to believe this, but uh, there are two um, improvised explosive devices or what we believe are improvised, uh, improvised explosive devices, IEDs, uh, that have been placed in the RNC and DNC. They're being investigated now um, and a large law enforcement uh, detachment has been sent there to investigate. And he said, and he ended with, is this really happening? And I couldn't answer him because I was stunned. Welcome back. I'm Aaron Davis, investigative reporter here at The Post. Joining me now to continue the conversation about the impacts of January 6th is Danielle Harvin, who is a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. Last year, Dr. Harvin was the Chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for the Government of the District of Columbia, where he oversaw the Capital Areas Fusion Center and DC's intelligence collection effort prior to and after January 6th. Then I'll welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Aaron. So we've spoken about this. We've reported about some of the work of your office. Your vantage point on and before January 6th was unique. Your team pieced together a broader landscape of intelligence before the 6th, and that led you to conclude that there really was a danger of extreme violence. Uh, but your office was not in the mainstream of law enforcement discussions about planning for that day. So a year has passed, and I guess I want to start with a candid question. Is there anything you wish you had done differently with the intelligence and what you knew and what you believe in the days leading up to January 6th? 
Well, I've struggled with that over the last year, um, and I actually just struggled through the last uh, 15 minutes with the interview you had with Sergeant Gunnell. Um, and I will tell you that he's not unique. Uh, I know firsthand other law enforcement officers that are struggling uh, with with what happened on them with uh, what happened that day. Um, if, if I knew then what I knew now, um, it, there there would be, um, I think, an opportunity to have prevented what those law enforcement officers at the Capitol and from the DC Metropolitan Police had to go through. Uh, we certainly have uh, in front of us an interesting juxtaposition in which the local authorities, uh, DC government, were far more prepared than the federal authorities for what we knew and anticipated would be coming, which is mass violence. Um, generally, that doesn't happen. Generally, it's the federal authorities that are informing the locals and supporting the locals, um, providing force multiplication for operations. Um, so in, in hindsight, um, we still don't know what happened with the intelligence that we shared. Uh, that's being investigated at multiple levels in government, including the select committee. Um, but but I wish that um, more individuals uh, had acted upon that information like we did. And just so everyone's clear and understands, what was that intelligence? What were you seeing in the days leading up, the weeks leading up to January 6th? To remind folks uh, so that we're all we can talk about this. Yeah, so we're used to First Amendment protected activities uh, in DC. It's the seat of our government. It's where uh, groups come to celebrate. Uh, they come to redress grievances. They come to get heard. Uh, groups as small as one person would assign. And I was at the Capitol today uh, before I came here. Uh, just to kind of walk around and, and kind of get my bearings. And I saw one person standing in front of the Capitol with a sign. Uh, groups as large as a million uh, that we saw that um, with the Women's March. And so we plan for those things on a regular basis. Uh, and they're generally peaceful. And uh, my job at the time was to lead a team whose primary responsibility is to make sure that people are able to come to the Capitol, uh, exercise their First Amendment protected rights, and do so safely. Uh, do so safely without fear from uh, being attacked by other people um, and also to make sure that the city is safe. Um, with that said, uh, with that said, we started analyzing information uh, about this particular event because we started seeing groups that are known for being violent extremists, uh, groups that we generally don't see come to the nation's capital, uh, groups that we were not familiar with. And they were not only articulating in large numbers that they would come to DC, but they also started sharing information about uh, things they would do when they get here, um, how to bring weapons into DC. Uh, obviously, guns are illegal uh, to carry, um, but in the parts of the country they were coming from, uh, open carry and concealed carry is, is, is legal. And so we were concerned that A, they would not understand the laws of the District of Columbia prohibit uh, them carrying weapons, uh, but they would also ignore that. The way I've thought about this being on January 4th, this is 48 hours before January 6th, the, the insurrection began essentially. And people might ask, why are we doing this a couple of days beforehand? But really, this is the moment a year ago where you had just raised 
and sounded the alarm to all of your colleagues across the country to other fusion centers. We reported on that call and where you had just actually held a call with DC area hospitals, urging them to commence their uh, protocols for a mass casualty event to stock up on blood banks and empty their ERs in anticipation of potentially mass casualties and, and, and injuries uh, on January 6th. And so here we are really, this was the beginning of the last 48 hours heading into uh, the attack. And so you had these concerns, you expressed these concerns locally, but it, the public wasn't hearing this. The FBI did not come out with a similar warning. The Department of Homeland Security did not issue a statement. Capitol Police did not say they were expecting something like this. Did the lack of urgency by the other agencies make you ever doubt the online chatter? Where were you when you woke up on January 6th? Well, there's a lot of questions I'll unpack. Um, yeah. First of all, you're absolutely right. This time last year, at this exact time, by the way, myself and my team were on a, a national call with the other fusion centers, um, explaining to them the concerning signs that we were seeing online and asking them for their assistance in collecting any information that would be deemed as credible or specific so that we could pass it on to our uh, local and federal law enforcement partners for action. In terms of the public not hearing about uh, the threat, um, I, I would point you to the statements that came out uh, by the DC mayor over the weekend beforehand, asking people to stay away. Um, she consumed the intelligence, the same intelligence that we all had. She made determination that she should reach out and ask people to stay away. And I think that saved lives because we didn't see any counter protesters. That's what we were really concerned about, counter protesters coming out. Um, and then you would have uh, interpersonal violence at the level we've probably never seen before if we had counter protesters. Um, and so, you know, my job was to make sure that the information was up to date, was as fresh and clean and vetted as possible and continue to dig for credible specific threats that we can act upon. We know from our reporting that there were these discussions across Washington taking place. The mayor obviously came out with those statements. Uh, DC police made a showing of hanging up uh, flyers saying don't bring your guns in the DC, it's illegal. But there was a breakdown. How did the processes as they stood in January of last year fail to provide adequate action or prevent at least a better girding for the scale of the attack on the Capitol? It's a year later and I still don't know. Um, I can speculate, but I don't in my business speculation isn't isn't what we do. I will tell you that this, this House Select Committee is looking at that. Um, I, I, I really can't speak any further as to, to what, they're, what they're looking at, but I will tell you that um, we're all concerned about how that breakdown occurred, especially when there was so much information and so much intelligence and it was being shared freely, um, at least on our end. Um, you know, years, uh, a year later, we learned that there was uh, meetings that were had that, that we weren't aware of. There, there was activities that were going on that we weren't necessarily a part of. Um, but at the end of the day, it is the federal government's responsibility to protect that building. That, that is a beacon of our democracy. It's not just a building. It's the heart and soul of our democracy. And um, it wasn't done. And, and I'm just as curious as you are about why that happened. One part that we have noted in our reporting 
was that some of the people in decision making positions at the federal agencies, particularly at the FBI, were concerned that acting on these threatening online conversations, these groups planning to come, even if discussing bringing arms to DC, would infringe on Americans' First Amendment protected rights. In your view at the time, was that a fair concern? You know, this is, this is the difficulty of public safety. And um, there's a thin line between uh, protecting civil liberties, civil rights, and the First Amendment, and allowing violent, radicalized individuals to, um, to, to harm property or people. And so at the end of the day, our first mission uh, for, for the team that I led was to make sure that everyone was able to come and peacefully protest. Um, if we found any indicators that individuals were gonna do likewise, um, uh, otherwise rather, uh, we would notify the, the proper authorities and, and we did that. Uh, we had a lot, of, a lot of information indicating that individuals were bringing weapons, um, that they were sharing information about how to penetrate into the Capitol, um, how they were organizing uh, to be uh, in, in squads almost, tactical formations, uh, how they had reinforcements planned. And so that's concerning. That's not a First Amendment protected activity. That's not a, 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 a march. That's not a peaceful protest. That's, that's something completely different. And while, and I do want to make it clear that in my personal assessment, the vast amount of individuals I think we've lost our audio there for a quick moment. Protected activities. Um, but th there was there was an organized, uh, very um, a different group that were coming that had something completely different in mind. And, and they effectively utilized the crowd as a force multiplier on that day um, to uh, operationalize their plans and to enter the Capitol uh, illegally. Some have described this kind of a line. If you can kind of help us with a line we should be thinking about on First Amendment protected speech and activities, that this shifted in some at some point in time from feeling like uh, talking about achieving political ends to more logistics for planning for something violent. Is that is that logistics idea? Is that a a line that a year later law enforcement can look at and point to? This is different. We should be treating this differently. You know, it's still. You'd have to speak to a constitutional lawyer, um, but from our from from the homeland security standpoint, you know you can say just about whatever you want online. Uh, that's that's the issue. Um, you know I, I can you can say I'm going to enter the Capitol. I'm going to do this. There's a line. A lot of these groups are very sophisticated as well. They know when not to cross that line. Um, but you know, when you cross that line, you get someone knocking on your door. Uh, the vast majority of these groups stop short of that. And that's why you, you haven't seen much reporting about uh, individuals that were uh, interdicted or investigated before January 6th. A lot of this was uh, available information, open source information, as we call it. Uh, they were talking on you know, chat rooms and, and things of that nature. They were pretty open, posting things. Um, but it's still protected by the First Amendment. You can't police people's thoughts. Unfortunately, people can say horrendous and uh, terrible things online, uh, but it's not until they mobilize towards violence that that you have an opportunity, uh, that, that you're obligated to do something. 
the problem is uh, the the period between radicalization and mobilization of violence can be very, very brief. And that's really the only time that you can take to interdict people. Have you been able to glean, I know you're now in a position studying this, uh, whether the agencies are treating these tips any differently now than they were a year ago? Uh, you know, did these events influence which tips they look at and how forcefully they go after them? Well, to, to my knowledge, uh, the standard is still uh, credible and specific threats. Um, you can say anything you want online, but that, that's not going to prompt a law enforcement response. Uh, well, just about anything you want. I want to correct that. Um, you know, you, you can't make specific threats against individuals, um, tactics and techniques. You, there, there are certain things you just can't say or do. Um, but by and large, the, the other issue is that many of these groups, and I, I want to I, I want to walk away from this discussion with everyone understanding that January 6th was a symptom. It wasn't an endpoint. And so many of these individuals gone back to their state and their community, and they're organizing at the local level. And so now the burden shifts not from the federal, from the federal government, but also to the state and locals. And so it's incredibly important to understand that um, the prevailing radicalization, the violent ideology is still out there. It's in our communities all across this country in every single state. People who came here uh, to DC to attack the Capitol came from every single state and they went back to every single state. And so to understand um, how they're being radicalized, to, to stop them before they uh, mobilize the violence, I think is the key. Um, there's still a high standard to your point, Aaron. Um, you just can't go and get a subpoena uh, or surveil people just because they said something that that, that may be reprehensible online. Uh, and the standard is still there. So it really places the burden on not just law enforcement, but regular citizens. You know, we have to get back to where we were post 9-11. If you see something, say something, right? And, and that's really the problem with, with how our domestic intelligence is framed. It's framed in a post 9-11 preventing apocalyptic type of foreign fighter violence um, mentality. And we have to get to the point that we're comfortable reporting things about our neighbors or people that we know uh, who become radicalized uh, to stop them before they actually mobilize the violence. Well, I closed by asking Sergeant Cannell earlier what he would tell Congress today if he could, what he'd tell the uh, committee that is investigating January 6th. We have reported that you have spoken with the committee, and so uh, I won't ask you the same question. But uh, I will ask you, and I'm a little worried from your previous answer, that it's not a, uh, a hopeful uh, thing to look forward to here, but do you think we are in a better position, a worse position, a year after this insurrection? Could something like this happen again? Well, that's two different questions. So uh, I, I think that we're in a worse position um, and, and I'm not prone to hyperbole and I'll explain that. Um, and the reason why I say that is because the ideology that exists is growing stronger and stronger every day. Uh, the point in question is there are groups that over the last two to three decades have mobilized around this violent thought of creating uh, a civil war, a race war. 
when you have, as Sergeant uh, Gunnell uh, alluded to, um, elected officials, as well as people in the media, who not only downplay what happened on January 6th, but also uh, you know, use code words and talk about uh, things that separate us. Um, the problem is that the heal that the, the the wound that was created on January 6th is not allowed to heal. And healing bring it requires national unity. And and I don't see that. I don't see that happening. Uh, the the danger here is that January 6th becomes a distraction. And and people focus on it too much as a singular event, as opposed to a foreshadowing of things to come, which uh, is a segue into your next question. Can it happen again? I don't think that we'll experience January 6th the way we experienced it last year in the same manner. But just like we never experienced people hijacking airplanes and flying them into buildings again, what will happen is that the individuals that are bent on violence are still out there and they're going to change their tactics. The fight is going to go back to the states. It's going to go back to the localities, uh, the local regions. Um, they, instead of you know, stopping the, the counting of votes, they will try to stop people from voting. And so I think that we have to look at the threat of these blended ideologies uh, you know, radical, uh, violent extremists, conspiracy theorists, armed militia, they came together on January 6th and they, they've made uh, packs um, that have gone back to the states and they've decentralized. And as we speak right now, they're, they are collaborating and looking at opportunities to continue to recruit and continue uh, to fight uh, for their cause, and that's what's concerning. Well, Dr. Harvin, thank you again for joining us on Washington Post Live. We're just about out of time. Uh, and thank all of you for joining us today uh, for this conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.